What a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. You know what that means. What a story. The last Saturday of the month. September. My listeners today are going to have a nourishing, fun, and I mean nourishing, treat today. It's a memoir written by a remarkable woman. I am proud to call her my friend. Her name is Vanessa David. I met her when she acted in a production uh, that I was producing at uh, a workshop in a theater workshop in Norwalk. When she decided she was going to leave acting, which you will hear about in this memoir, she went on to become a very proficient and more than proficient, exciting uh, nature photographer. But that wasn't going to get her any money. So what you are going to hear today is part, uh, part, I'm rustling a lot of papers here in this recording, uh, part, her preface, chapter two, and chapter three, and six, which make up a unit of her memoir, The Lunch Teacher. Reading, narrating, as if it's audible, we decided we would call it inable, is actually a really fine audible narrator who favors WPKN. And her name is Clara Francesca. Uh, she's a war, an award-winning artist and director, voiceover actor, and speech coach. Give a listen. Clara Francesca reads Vanessa David's The Lunch Lady. The Lunch Teacher by Vanessa David. This memoir was written after the fact. I was not taking notes while I lived it. I had no idea I'd end up writing a book. So this is all according to my memory, which is far from perfect. Most of the names have been changed, along with some identifying characteristics, and the timing of some events has been altered for dramatic purposes. Dialogue has been recreated. Some phrases are spot on, some not so much. This is strictly my point of view. Chapter 2. The Interview. December 2014. I hadn't worked in six years. I arrived for my interview at Darien High School overconfident, acting like I had for decades in the theater. Several students assisted me in finding the cafeteria, and I went in the exit much to the visual dismay of the woman at the cash register. I'd later learn her name was Bonnie and she hated her job. She was good at it, and the pins on her hat celebrating her years of service proved she was proud, but she still hated it. And she hated me as I lifted the rope of the stanchion to get out of her way and into the cafeteria. 
I'm here to see Sharon. Just as I said that, Sharon came out looking for me. She was well put together, nicely dressed, and clearly in charge. She looked around the servery like a hawk, making sure everyone was on task. The place was like a New Jersey rest stop, several stations selling everything a teenager could want. French fries, pizza, burgers, salads, sandwiches, drinks, and stacks and stacks of snacks. Two ladies ran the deli station, which was so popular, they had their own cash register and exit that I had just violated moments ago. Sharon took a moment to point out the various stations. I make great pizza, came flying out of my mouth. It was true. Learning how to make pizza from scratch was worth the entire tuition of the one-year culinary arts certificate program I attended at Norwalk Community College and graduated from four and a half years prior to this interview. I needed this job. I needed a purpose. I was slowly coming to terms with the fact that my theater career was sputtering its way to the final curtain. The regular acting gigs I'd had in the past were now gone. I was part of a theater workshop that was in theory useful for developing my plays, but in actuality, it was a time suck that was consuming me like a parasite, using me to continue its mission and leaving me lifeless for my own creative work. Why was I even trying? My mother had been dead for seven years. She was the one who'd instilled in me the need to be famous. Perhaps it was time to finally let her down and get on with my life. Sharon took me into her office. It was decorated with pictures of her family and had funny memes taped up to every available surface. A big bowl of candy sat atop the file cabinet. Sharon sat me down and told me about the job. Her eyes sparkled. I stared into them. Eye contact had never been my strong suit. I was afraid people could see right through me, see into my soul, see I was a fraud or wasn't worthy or worse. They could see my weaknesses. I focused on her tried not to think about eating all the candy and stared into her eyes like the actress I'd once been. I was eager to work, willing to learn, able to operate a cash register and make change. She asked if I had another job, and I did. I'd just been hired to do social media for a local music school and run the store on Saturdays, eight hours a week. That's good she said, because you need another job to survive in this business. I've been here almost 30 years and I still have to babysit to pay the bills. Darien is a wealthy town. How is it possible that the woman who ran the cafeteria in the one high school in the entire district, who ran this highway rest stop for teenagers with all these choices, didn't make enough money to survive? The interview kept going and I held Sharon's sparkly gaze. She told me I'd have to learn how to run all the stations and the cash register. They'd give me two shirts plus money for shoes and pants. 
I sold myself like it was a New York City audition. And I must have said all the right things because a day later I got a call from this director, Priscilla. I got the job. A couple of weeks, one drug test, a set of fingerprints, and a mountain of paperwork later. I was officially employed by the Deary Ann School Lunch Program. I got a call from central office that I was to report to work the next day wearing a collared shirt. Now, Sharon had told me they'd give me a shirt, but who was I to correct the Board of Education? My husband, Dave, scraped together enough credit to buy me a navy blue off-brand polo shirt at Walmart for nine bucks. I wore that shirt every day until the end of the school year. That was the first sign of rampant dysfunction. The best was yet to come. Mea culpa, me bad. I must correct that, as you heard Clara Francesca, the narrator, say, the lunch teacher is the name of the memoir. It's a very important uh, difference for Vanessa who became a nutrition teacher so that the kids learned from her, who originally called her the lunch lady to call her the lunch teacher. Here we go. Chapter three, curtain up. When I arrived at the high school for my first day in my new shirt, I was introduced to Dorothy. My mother's given name was Dorothy, and I took it as a sign I was in the right place. She died seven years before I even applied for this job, but somehow her death had led me straight here. My mom had Alzheimer's, and by the time she died, my husband Dave and I had spent eight years taking care of her. We moved back to Stanford and got an apartment down the hall from her we really couldn't afford. At the time... When we should have been building a life together, we turned it all around to watch my mother crumble. To this day, I struggle with this being the right thing. It upended our marriage, our finances, our future, and certainly derailed any momentum I had in my acting career. How ironic. The one thing she instilled in me was the one thing I was unable to achieve. In the end, she didn't want me to be famous. She wanted me to be near her, to take care of her, to watch her degenerate until she was no longer even there. Once she was completely gone, we put her in a home where she spent 11 jolly months, happy as a clam. I waited tables at California Pizza Kitchen for a cruel, frugal public and went to visit her every day. My starch shirt and tie smelled like pepperoni. She was happy. I was miserable. The last few weeks, I couldn't force myself to go. When she died, I was relieved. Dave and I were shot. Physically, financially, and emotionally drained. We both had jobs we didn't like. No social lives. The years of taking care of my mom had stifled us in more ways than we could realize... I had so much anger and resentment built up inside me that I oozed loathing. When panic attacks threatened to consume me as I walked through the revolving door of California Pizza Kitchen, I knew it was time to quit. 
After a few months of self-pity, I turned to food to heal me. I started cooking, which I'd never really done before, and invited the few friends I had left to dinner. I started blogging about my weekly-themed dinner parties. I made food porn featuring the music of local bands. I went to culinary school at Norwalk Community College and graduated with straight A's. I ended up making a ton of new friends and had a blast, but my blog never achieved my mother's level of success and I eventually burned out. I kept the friends and I kept the food. Both had saved me from a life of misery. Here I was at the high school, being trained by Dorothy, who was younger and shorter and stronger than me. She was Sharon's right-hand woman. They had an unspoken understanding of one another. Are you married? Sharon asked. Yes, I answered. How long? I don't know. A long time. I was prepared to answer many culinary questions that day. How long I was married was not one of them. Okay, why don't you cut some onions? My brain lit up. This I was ready for. My first official act at the high school, and I was going to get to show off my knife skills. Where are the onions? Dorothy turned and grabbed a handful of sliced onions from the salad station. Oh, I guess I wasn't going to get to show off the proper way to cut an onion. The first lesson we learned on my first day of culinary school. My teacher showed us how to trim the top and then cut it in half, root side up, and then peel off the outer layers, saving the scraps for stock, of course. He demonstrated how to hold it on the root end and make long slices or add multiple cuts vertically and horizontally so it would come out diced without ever coming apart in the process. Nope, I was not to do that today. I took the pile of sliced onions and diced it up fine, rocking my knife back and forth like a pro on a color-coded cutting board that was not color-coded for veggies. Oh dear, not at all what I'd learned in culinary school. But I hadn't worked in six years. I'd been there a minute. I didn't know how to tell them they were doing it all wrong. There were ten people working, nine women and one man. They all silently went about their business, performing their duties as they had been assigned eons ago. It was a well-oiled machine. A short and squat Greek woman named Maggie stood at the salad station, silently making salads. Next to her, the one brave man, Eddie, operated the slicer, slicing onions and cucumbers and more deli meat than you can imagine. He portioned it all into bags that were then frozen and then thawed before serving. I made a mental note not to eat a sandwich at work. Dower Bonnie, whose space I'd violated when I came for my interview, was making grab-and-go sandwiches. Sweet and quiet, Annie was stocking the pizza station with frozen pizza. Everyone had their job, and they were doing it. It was well-organized, but in my mind I questioned the culinary value. Perhaps I was ignorant, or judgy, or both, but other than the vegetables, I didn't see any raw ingredients. I saw assembly, not cooking. Two completely different things. 
I was paired up with Annie for my first lunch service. She ran the pizza and hot lunch station. I realized my bold statement of pizza making prowess a few weeks earlier had been pointless. There was no pizza making here, only heating up a pre-cooked, pre-cut product. A huge poster advertised Sal's Pizza, featuring an old black and white photo of, I assume, Sal in early New York. The marketing suggested this pizza was the real deal, but I'd disagree. The pizza oven was a monstrosity with a metal conveyor belt that brought the pizza from one end to the other. Thawed at one end and half-cooked at the other. You had to put it back in and reach into a little door in the middle with a spatula to move it along in the process the second time through or the pizza would be too cooked for the kids. The entire machine looked like It hadn't been cleaned since it was installed. There were crumbs everywhere in the unreachable places. Scorch marks and burnt-out grease gave the machine a careless patina. I suppose it didn't matter because the pizza hadn't a drop of care in it either. It was bland, had no chew in the crust, and the cheese wasn't allowed to take on any color for fear the kids wouldn't like it. And as soon as you took it out of the oven, you had to take the temperature. Why? So you know it's done. I just ran it through the machine one and a half times. What's the point of this huge, filthy piece of equipment if it's not cooking the pizza? I had learned all about temperatures in school. The temperature danger zone was 40 to 140. I'd learned that in sanitation class, but... I'd be damned if I could remember one instance of taking a temperature in the kitchen. We learned when food was done by sight, shrinkage and smell. In two years at California Pizza Kitchen, I'd never seen anyone take the temperature of a pizza. But I guessed this was the way of school food. I did as I was told, learning where to put the thermometer to get the desired reading and where to write it down every 15 minutes. The pizza station was crazy busy. We also served an occasional hot lunch, but not too many. Just enough to be a chore to have to change gears. Enjoy, I'd say as I handed the kids their food. A holdover for my days at California Pizza Kitchen. The kids looked at me like I was nuts. I don't think anyone had ever said anything to them when handing them their food. I liked enjoy and kept it. I worked with Annie on the pizza station for a few days, and then it was time to work the grill with Daisy, Dorothy's older, shorter, and stronger sister. She told me to make the fries. I got them out of the freezer, opened the bag, poured them into the basket, and lowered them into the hot oil. I was in love. It took me back to my childhood. Summers at the Italian center when I was lucky enough to be a guest for my lifelong friend, Michele. The smell of hot French fries and ketchup on a sunny day in a snack shack by the pool reminded me of my carefree youth. However short it was, I took the fries out of the oil when they took on a nice golden hue. They're not done, Daisy said. But look at them. Put them back. I did as I was told. Minutes later, she took them out, shook off the excess oil, and hung the basket above. 
Take the temperature, she said. It's 205. Now they're done. Put them there. Where's the salt? No salt. No salt? No salt. I motioned to the egg and cheese sandwiches she was making. What about those? You don't season those? No. Perhaps my culinary assessment of what was going on a few days earlier was on point. I was taught to season my food at every stage. One chef in school refused to put salt and pepper on the tables because the food was already perfectly seasoned. These poor rich kids were getting egg and cheese sandwiches and french fries without seasoning. My face contorted at the thought. There's salt over there, Daisy said, pointing to a table in the center with napkins, a gigantic vat of ketchup, and bowls of salt and pepper packets. It wasn't the same. The seasoning didn't adhere to the food. It didn't become a part of it, part of the crust. I didn't try to explain. Service at the grill was way more intense than at the pizza station. So much going on and only room at the flat top for one person to do it. I made fries all day and took temperatures every 15 minutes. Just those two tasks were running me ragged. So many temperatures to take. Fries, sandwiches, egg sandwiches, burgers. In the middle of lunch, Sharon came up to me. The health department is here. Check those sandwiches over there. If they're less than 160, throw them out. I swore, she said, 160. Sharon went around telling everyone the health department was there, and I could see this was serious business. I matched everyone's frenetic scramble of energy. I rushed over to the hot sandwiches at Annie's station, as Sharon had instructed me, and took their temperature. They were 155. I went to throw them out, and he tried to stop me. Sharon said to throw them out if they were less than 160. She hesitated for a split second, and then she agreed to help me throw them out. Just as the health department, Brunhilde came around the corner. She had a disapproving air about her, looking around, giving us the white glove test in her mind. I despised her immediately. Now, what are you doing with these? She asked as I was throwing the sandwiches away. I was frozen, unable to form complete sentences. She took one out of the garbage and took its temperature. It's 153. Fine. I thought she said 160 came meekly out of my mouth. Brunhilde moved on, but my fumble was caught. As Sharon passed, I again offered my poor excuse. I thought you said 160. I don't like numbers. Math and I haven't always gotten along, but the temperature danger zone was easy to remember. 40 to 140, 40 to 140, 40 to 140. It was drilled into us in school. How was I not able to determine that I'd misheard Sharon? Why wasn't I smart enough to know what was right in the moment? Why couldn't I stand firm in my knowledge and not royally screw up my first week on the job? I was disappointed in myself, beyond belief. 
Health Department Brunhilde came back to talk to me. She said she'd get me signage that said the temperature danger zone was 40 to 140. I told her, I know the temperature danger zone is 40 to 140. I thought she said 160. I heard Brunhilde and Sharon talking in the kitchen, going over the final score. I heard Brunhilde say I didn't know the temperature danger zone, and she was taking off one point for that. I should have stopped her. I should have corrected her. I should have gotten Annie to be my witness. I should have set the record straight so that months later this incident wouldn't color my end-of-year review, but I didn't. At the end of the year, our director, Priscilla, went over my review with me that Sharon had written. I told her exactly what had happened, and she just said, Oh, Bunhilder is like that. Don't worry about it. She didn't go out to get Sharon and set the record straight. She told me to sign the review, and I did. I shouldn't have done that. I should have stood up for myself and my story. I should have stood up for the truth. I misheard her. I thought she said 160. Chapter 6. A Chance for a New Beginning Over the summer, my job at the music school changed. I was promoted to administrative assistant, which meant I'd be signing kids up for lessons, renting out instruments, and more. I told Sharon about my new hours, and she said she'd work around them. I arrived at the middle school for the mandatory opening convocation, bright and early, dressed in my summer best, a nice beaded shirt and a pencil jean skirt. This was the only time I got to see the other ladies in people clothes, and they did not disappoint. Some wore sparkles, some wore flowy tops with airbrushed colors sweeping across their chests. Some were flowery, some were prints. No one was excited to be there. I signed in with Kiki, Priscilla's assistant, and she handed me a packet of papers, color-coded information sheets about call-out procedures, what illnesses prevented you from coming to work, important phone numbers, and a work agreement that stated the number of days we'd be working, where we'd be working, and the hours. My new hours were 7.30 to 11, the American dream. I happily signed the work agreement, feeling more official now than when I'd started. I handed it off to Kiki, punched in, and checked out the breakfast offerings. Stale baked goods, fruit, yogurt, juice, water, and coffee. I sat at a round table built for tweens with Dee Dee, Trina, and Agnes. We were actually happy to see each other, apparently bonded in some strange way. After choking down a dry muffin or two, the event began. Priscilla got on the microphone and welcomed everyone. I didn't interact with Priscilla very much during the school year. We talked on the phone when she scheduled my interview. I saw her every day when she came in to talk to Sharon, her shoes clicking and clacking in the back hallway, alerting us of her arrival. Priscilla was always dressed in a never-ending catalog of printed silk blouses. Never the same shirt twice. During the winter, she wore a finely crafted and elegantly tailored wool coat with the most beautiful sparkly violet brooch. Like a flower and an ice crystal had conspired to make the wear shine. 
Her hair was always highlighted and styled, and she always wore makeup. Unlike most of us fresh-faced, well-weathered lunch ladies. Today, I expected to see her shine. Priscilla got on the mic with great authority and proceeded to go over some basic rules. Wear gloves. Take temperatures. Write everything down. Then things got interesting. She proceeded to use June's mistakes as a learning tool for the rest of us. June didn't give a flying saucer what Priscilla thought or said, and Priscilla must have thought publicly embarrassing her would drive the point home. Your uniform is only the shirts we give you. Not a shirt you buy at the store. Not a shirt you bring from home. Not a shirt you won in a bowling tournament. Only the shirts we give you. Other shirts are not safe. They are not made of the right material. You are to wear the shirts I give you with black, navy, or khaki pants. Pants, capris, or shirt that ends below your knees. No shorts and no black jeans. Got it, June? I got it. Came out of June's mangled throat. Because you wear black jeans all the time and you can't. It's a safety issue. I could hear the aggression in the tone of her voice and wondered how many times June had been told. But the tone of Priscilla's voice, I guess, no less than a hundred. Jeans aren't the right material, and if something spills on them, you're going to get hurt. I wasn't aware of the protective qualities of the dickies I'd been wearing, but I wasn't about to spill hot liquids on them to find out. Priscilla continued. You are not to come to work sick, June. You are to call in sick using the procedures on the yellow sheet that we just gave you, June. Your contract gives you sick days. You get paid. I don't understand why you wouldn't stay home when you're sick, June. You are working with food. You can't work around food if you are sick, June. June just grumbled under her breath. I giggled. I knew from working with her husband all those years, you did not call in sick. That was one of his three rules. Don't lie to me, don't steal from me, and don't call in sick. I understood those rules. I'd lived with them for many, many years. I knew why June didn't call in sick. Plus, if she'd stayed home, she'd get stuck there with her husband. And who wanted that after 30-something years of marriage? Then the real fun began. Priscilla and Kiki started handing out raffle tickets. Everyone got two, one red, one blue. I assumed this had something to do with the numerous tables covered with gift bags. She started calling out numbers and everyone got a prize. Kitchen things, mostly. I got brownie mix. I hate brownies. Then she started calling out the second tickets. These were for the big ticket items. Not everyone won something during this round. As I waited for my number to get called, I realized something. My ass hurt. A lot. These plastic round chairs were designed for tiny preteen butts to sit on for 20 minutes. My butt was far from tiny, and I was deep into hour two of a six-hour day. I made a mental note to bring a pillow next year. 
Kiki stopped calling numbers for a little while and the consultant, Franny, got on the mic. Priscilla at least was a dynamic speaker and had some comic value ribbing June like she had. Franny droned about customer service. My mind took off and I wondered if one day I could combine my stage presence with my job title and actually train and entertain at the same time. She changed the topic to civil rights and I snapped back into action when Priscilla stood up at the back of the cafeteria and proved once again she was the more dynamic speaker of the two. You cannot refuse service to anyone. If a student has a debt greater than two lunches, you are to give them a cheese sandwich and whatever sides are on the line, a piece of fruit, a vegetable, a cup of salad, whatever. You cannot refuse service because a student doesn't have any money in their account. Managers, we will talk about this more later. Cashiers, please, do you understand me? You are not to refuse service to anyone. Everyone mumbled. My eyes welled with tears. My parents never gave me lunch money when I was a kid. And they never made me lunch. I honestly don't have any idea what they were thinking. One of my earliest memories was waiting in a room in a kindergarten for my dad to bring me a lunch. I guess the teachers wanted to separate me from the other kids who were actually eating. How could my parents send me to kindergarten without lunch? In elementary school, I'd always get in line, not realizing at first I needed money. Some of the kids got bright yellow punch cards from the teacher. There wasn't one for me. Other kids had money in their pocket. I had lint, maybe a crumbled up tissue, but no lunch money. They let me go, but eventually I realized I needed to pay for lunch and I didn't have a way to do that. I remember my mom buying me a punch card once, and I remember unintentionally scamming another one when it ran out. Looking back now, I wonder if the lunch lady took pity on me and let me get away with it. The other kids automatically got a new one when their punch card ran out. Why didn't I? When I found out they got their lunch for free, I asked my mom why I didn't too. She said we made too much money for that. But then why don't you give me lunch money? Because we don't have it, she snapped. I didn't understand. My parents were both immigrants. Maybe they thought America would take care of me and feed me. But it didn't work that way. And I went hungry at school more days than I can remember. Eventually, when I got a little older... I got them to leave me a ball of change in a drawer and I'd grab a handful of coins on my way to the bus stop in the morning. When the bowl was empty, I went hungry. One day, I vividly remember only having one quarter to buy lunch. I bought a bag of sunflower seeds in the snack line and I sat at the table all by myself, feeling miserably alone in every way. I struggled to open the thick plastic package, pulling my fingers and my teeth until the package burst open and my sunflower seeds spilt all over the floor. There were three seeds left in a corner of the package and I scoffed them up. I sat staring down at the floor waiting for someone to see what had happened and give me another quarter so I could eat. The vice principal came by and made a crack about me making a mess and he left. I can still see him with his white hair and his black glasses and a smug grin. He walked away, shaking his head, 
not noticing there was no other food in front of me. Not an empty tray, not an orange pill, nothing. Back in the microphones, Frenny told us we were not to refuse service to anyone regardless of their ability to pay or any allergy they might have. These were civil rights, and she'd make sure we had posters in every one of our kitchens reminding us and the students of this. I wondered if I'd had these rights when I was a kid. I wondered why I was allowed to fall through the cracks. Why had no one advocated for me? Not my parents, not my teachers, not even the vice principal. Perhaps the kind lunch lady who'd let me scam a second punch card had been my advocate. One day I went into the kitchen to get money from the change bowl and I saw it. A brown bag lunch sitting on top of the stove. I wondered what was in it. We didn't have the little bags of chips and cookies like the other kids had. And I knew we didn't have Wonder Bread. Glue, my mother called it. She hated Wonder Bread. But I didn't really care what it was. My parents had finally made me lunch. I walked on air to the bus stop and daydreamed all through the first few hours of school. This was what it felt like to be loved. Lunchtime came, and my bagged lunch proved I was the most loved girl in the school. Prosciutto on marble bread and beef bouillon in a thermos. It was amazing. I showed off my lunch to anyone who would look in my general direction. Teachers praised my palate. Most kids don't like marble bread. Why not? It was delicious. The salty, sweet meat, the complex flavors of the rye and the pumpkin nickel washed down with hot, salty beef bouillon. I was the happiest girl in the world. It was my dad's lunch. When I got home, I'd learned I'd taken my dad's lunch. Priscilla stood up again in the back of the cafeteria and proudly declared that English was the only language we were to speak at work. That didn't seem like civil rights to me. When I worked at California Pizza Kitchen, the entire kitchen staff spoke Spanish. A good percentage of the servers spoke English and Spanish, which came in very handy when trying to communicate. It didn't make sense to me that Priscilla was insisting everyone speak only English, but from her tone, I surmise that some people had been talking about others in another language and causing problems. It never occurred to me to talk about my co-workers while at work. I didn't have the time. After the civil rights training, the gift raffle continued, and I won a glass pumpkin. Thank goodness. I always needed a glass pumpkin. I quickly decided to bring it to my other job and leave it there by the coffee maker for some seasonal decoration. The day wore on, my ass fell completely asleep. Cisco sent various salesmen to prepare products for our lunch. They tried to sell them to us as we walked from table to table with our sleeping asses in toe as if we had any say in what was sold in our cafeterias. We all just did what we were told. Sharon was the only one visibly jazzed about this part of the day. She'd run the high school long enough. She had creative control. I longed for the day I'd have the same. Right now, it wasn't to be. I took my samples and sat down for lunch. My ass was thrilled. The day wore on and nothing was accomplished. We got no shirts. We got no aprons. We covered no rules except the ones used to publicly skewer June. 
Where were our goals? Where was our culture? What were the SOPs? I was expecting something grand, like when I worked at California Pizza Kitchen, a brand new restaurant opening, and a brand new part of the Stanford Mall. A team of trainers descended upon us from corporate and worked with us for over a week, teaching us about the company culture, the sequence of service and our duties and responsibilities for the guests and for each other. We had tests and quizzes and our uniforms were picked apart. It was serious. Here at the middle school, now in hour five, I sat on my corpse of an ass and questioned why we were here at all. It was a colossal waste of time, a show of strength for Priscilla, but the rest of us just felt our day had been wasted. We'd been given crap gifts, bad food, and June was reamed out in public. Now we were all temporarily dead from the waist down, and we had nothing to get excited about, nothing to grab onto and energize us for the year to come. It was a downer. Not the way I'd want to run a school lunch program, that was for sure. When I showed up for the first day of school, I wore a pink polo shirt from Walmart. I was tired of the navy blue one I'd worn for five and a half months. Sharon came straight to me and reminded me that Priscilla had told us all we were only to wear the shirt she gave us. I meekly and politely pointed out that I was never given a shirt. I'd worn my own shirt every day the previous year. Sharon silently went into her office and got me two of the biggest shirts I'd ever seen. Red and light blue. I was pleased they weren't navy. And thus the school year began. The lunch teacher says a great deal about women in food services, mostly women. As one of the women programmers at WPKN, let me go on record. Please get out and vote because it's women's futures that are at stake. Women's rights cannot go backwards to the 18th. Actually, in the 18th century, women almost had more rights. I end with a sweet sounding, but powerful, gorgeous song by Alexandra Christie, who her, what she says about herself is amazing. She is here to serve. I have to read this right. I don't want to, um, I don't want to shortchange her. She, I believe, this is her statement. You can find her on LinkedIn under Alexandra Christie. I believe in the collective power of people to change the world. as you let every child. 
I just realized after I heard that song again that I wanted to share with the WPKN audience, listeners, locally or globally, not so local because we reach Connecticut and Long Island, that the subject of women's rights is so important to me that I am working with another organization and have formed a not-for-profit called the A Chronicles. Our website is not complete yet, but this uh, subject has touched me deeply because of some service I did, volunteer service, when I was 21 years old at a clinic in, um, oh, at a clinic in New York where indigent women were participating in a study on IUDs. And I went in every Wednesday. My mother paid for me to have a babysitter for my three kids. At that time, my then husband was at work. And my job was to interview the indigent women in the wards after their delivery and to ask them if they wanted more children. The study was being conducted by the World Population Council and I was to go to each person with a clipboard and ask them that. I spoke a minimum amount of Spanish but enough to get me through the questions. And there were African-Americans, there were uh, Puerto Ricans, there were many Latinos. And and, uh, a few, just a few indigent white women, which was a very interesting mix in those days. It was 19... 69, I think, or I I don't want to do the math. Guys, don't make me do the math. And in that interview process, which I told the director of the World Population Council, Dr. Teets, I thought the question of asking a woman uh, right after delivery if they wanted another baby was really a loaded question because I think most women right after delivery, that would be like asking them, you want to join the bowling alley tonight, be the bowling league. So what would happen was I would um, bring the questionnaires back. And then six weeks after each woman's interview, she would show up for her postpartum checkup, whereupon the Lippies Loop, which was the first IUD, would be recommended to her and inserted. It was became routine. I actually liked it, the job, and felt very worthwhile volunteering. 
until one day, uh, and this, I hope not to sound like a Karen, but this was an odd event. A woman in her early 40s, looking quite haggard, white and with a brogue. Um, I wasn't good at reading where the brogue came from. Could have been Ireland, Scotland. Yeah, I, I wasn't English, but she came in and she had a disabled child, girl with her who had Down syndrome. And I gave the mother the gown, the little, wasn't a paper gown then. I gave her the gown, the hospital gown, so she could be examined. And she said, no, she didn't need to be examined. The girl needed to be examined. The girl was 12. I um, gave the girl the robe and like most Down syndrome, children. She was very pleasant. She was obedient and kind and uninhibited. And the doctor came in and he was very patrician and curt with her. And he examined the girl and he turned to the mother and he said, she's about four months pregnant. And the mother said, maybe we could get that operation. And the patrician doctor said, that is illegal. Now, what was so wrong with this was that he was on the ad hoc committee under the Episcopal Diocese of New York for abortion reform. Pre-Roe versus Wade, because that was the case that made the difference. And the, the doctor walked out of the room and the woman looked at me. And she said, she was wringing her hands. That can't be. She's never alone. No, we we never leave her alone. How could this have happened? And then she said, the only person ever with her is my husband. He's the superintendent of the building and she's with him all day. And I watched her face drop in recognition of what she was most likely saying. Her eyes welled up and got her daughter got dressed and she got dressed. And she looked at me so imploringly. Every mid upper middle class, middle class girl in New York in my day knew how to get an illegal abortion. They kept money for it. They had the means, the resources, the network to not carry a pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy, um, re- or in those days, yes, usually unwanted, um, to termination. I followed the woman out to the elevator and I said to her, I don't want you to ever tell anyone this. And I wrote down the name of a well-known abortionist whose name is Nathan Rappaport. And he flipped back and forth on abortion quite a few times. But he, I think he lived in Pennsylvania and he would perform an abortion. I slipped this paper. I told her how much I thought it would be. 
I hoped she could get the money together. And she thanked me. And I realized that, you know, was I an accomplice? What was there a, something that what I shared my resources? And about six weeks later, I received a beautiful letter from this woman about how I had saved she and her daughter, or is it her and her daughter? Uh, somebody will correct me, I'm sure. And um, I became involved then with the abortion rights movement and formed the Westchester Committee, that's where I was living, for abortion reform. Thank you all for listening. What a story. Support for WPKN comes from Edmond Town Hall at 45 Main Street in Newtown, Connecticut, presenting the Mexo-Americana band David Wax Museum on Friday, September 30th. This folk musician husband-wife duo of David Wax and Suze Slezak performs songs blending Americana with regional music of Mexico and other influences. Singer-songwriter Dan Zlotnick opens the concert at 7 p.m., more information and tickets at edmontownhall.org. On the next Alternative Radio, hear Arundhati Roy on the RSS, Fascism in India. That's Alternative Radio, Monday mornings at 6 on WPKN 89.5 FM, Independent Community Radio. WPKN supports Hispanic Heritage Month with a number of WPKN-produced events. On Wednesday, September 28th, at the Bijou Theater in downtown Bridgeport, we present the biographical film Cesar Chavez, focusing on the life and impact of this American labor leader who co-founded the United Farm Workers. Doors open at 7 p.m. The film screens at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are $10 and available online at bijoutheaterct.net. Is trading in your car more hassle than it's worth? Then choose a real alternative. Donating your car to WPKN. Avoid the Blue Book Blues and the dealer drama and contribute to the diverse universe that is your WPKN. You'll get a sweet tax deduction and will feel that WPKN pride while you're out in your new ride. Donating is easy. Call 877-WPKN-CAR. 877-WPKN-CAR. Or go straight to our website, wpkn.org, and follow the step-by-step instructions. Weir Farm National Historical Park, located in Fairfield County, offers something for everyone. The grounds are open year-round. Gardens, stone walls, trails, meadows, and a pond inspire visitors and artists in all seasons. Visitors enjoy hiking, walking their dogs, becoming junior park rangers, creating art in the park, chatting with park rangers, and walking in the footsteps of American masters, including the park namesake, American Impressionist Julian Alden Weir. May through October, the park offers programs and tours of the wildly artistic Weir House, Weir Studio, and Young Studio. Admission to Weir Farm is free, and all park programs are free, too. More information is available on the park website at www.nps.gov wefa. What can I say about WPKN? I love the music. 
It's music you can't hear on any other station. All genres. Good stuff. The host is very knowledgeable. The only thing I can't figure is their schedule. You know, like, when are they playing what? But hey, that's the beauty of listening to this station. You just tune in and discover something you haven't heard before. Yeah, 89.5 WPK in Bridgeport. It's like serendipity on your dial. 